welcome to worship. The fifth Sunday in Lent. And now it's time to talk about the elephant in the room. Do you know that expression? That's the one that there's something significant and large in our presence, but we don't mention it. We go to Bethany, where Jesus is with three of his closest friends. The elephant in the room, as Mary breaks open ointment, is death. What a way to start a worship service, huh? But if we think about death and its import, I'm borrowing from Emerson Powery, a theologian in Pennsylvania, who says, if you think about death, if you put it in perspective, that shapes how not only you live individually, but how churches live together. And so we will be addressing the elephant in the room today. But not only that, we address the promise of Jesus' resurrection. As a friend of mine likes to say, death is real, the resurrection is real-er. Gospel according to St. John, the 12th chapter. <clears throat> Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with them. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, and then she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me the gospel of our Lord. Won't you be seated? Grace and peace to you from the God of light and life and love and Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lazarus had been stinking dead 
And now he's at a dinner party. One of the hosts decides this would be an opportune time to break out some burial oil worth about a year's wages. And so she breaks it wide open. She slathers it on Jesus' feet. The aroma fills the nostrils and the lungs and the house. And we all know that this ointment is ointment of death. So would it be really bad if I sang that little riff, wasn't that a party? <laughs> what a strange and macabre spectacle this is. Now look ahead a little bit to Holy Thursday. Jesus on a knee washing the disciples' feet. I invite you to carry those images with you for the next couple of weeks. But for now, as we are in the house at Bethany, in the room, as the perfume lingers, so does death. And John's Gospel particularly telegraphs this for us by making a big issue about when these things happened. Passover. Passover is associated with death, is it not? Okay, four examples. Five. I'll give you five. One is free. The plagues that lead up to the slaves escaping. The night that the firstborn die as the death angel passes over. A lamb at Passover is slain. At one of the first Passover observances that Jesus makes a public appearance is one at which he critiques the religious and economic system. You remember the critique? Overgo the tables, the money changers get chased out, and it's about that time that the religious leaders decide that Jesus needs to die. And there's one more. Just before Passover, the multitudes hunger and Jesus feeds them. Now that sounds like that's all about life, and it certainly is. But in John chapter 6, Jesus spends a great deal of time speaking about the giving of himself, inviting us to feast on his abundance, but also he speaks of his self-sacrifice. And so even at this abundant feast, death has shown up. If you read ahead in the gospel just a wee bit, there's a plot to have Lazarus killed. The plot to kill Jesus is already well known. And so it is that death, welcome, bidden, unbidden, probably the latter, is a constant companion in this gospel reading. It is indeed the elephant in the room. But isn't that true for us also? Don't we intuit what's going on with death all around us? It was just this week that John Donne, a poet and priest 
in our history was commemorated. You might remember some of his poetry. Oh, there's an English professor in the room. I hope I get this right. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for thee. How'd I do? Ah, at least a B minus. <laughs> he passed. But John Donne writes about the way our lives and our deaths intermingle. That we are indeed all related. That when one dies, we are all somehow diminished, he says. And isn't that true? That interconnectedness we feel. And if you don't believe John Donne, maybe CNN has something to say. Since the beginning of the coronavirus worldwide, there have been six million deaths. The statistics in Ukraine are some 13,000 people, combatants, have died. We don't know the civilian casualties yet. And that is but one war on the face of the planet. I don't even have the numbers for you if I were to speak about the war in Ethiopia with Eritrea or the unrest in Cameroon, or the war in Yemen, or the unrest in Bangladesh against the Rohingya minority people. And that's just scratching the surface. Talk about the pervasiveness and the depth of death. And we can think about our own personal experience where we're mourning people who have died, those who are dying, and then we start to think about our own bodies as they begin to break down and our senses are less acute and we're not able to do what we once were able to do. Even our institutions that we thought would last forever seem to be on their last leg. It would be as if the physicists were right. Entropy is the name of the game. Entropy being that winding down into randomness. Oh, having fun yet? It may seem morbid to talk in the way that this sermon is presenting. The people of Bhutan would think, actually, we're the weird ones. Like, <coughs> not contemplating death. They have a daily practice in Bhutan of contemplating their own mortality. And they would say that the Western culture is the odd one out because we regard life frequently as a checklist. The things that we achieve, the things that we accomplish, the things that we accumulate, and when that's all done, we're done. The people of Bhutan would say, that each and every single day is a gift to be cherished and lived for the day. I guess it's been close to 30 years that I've been going to funerals and funeral lunches. And I can tell you, every single one, without exception, somebody says the following. We really shouldn't have to wait for a funeral to get together like this. Right? You've heard it. I think that speaks to our universal sense of how precious life 
really is. In a group discussion earlier in the week, somebody said, that's right, don't wait to tell people you love them. It's a lot easier to say it to their face than to their gravestone, isn't it? That says something to us, doesn't it, about giving death its due, as Shakespeare would say. But it doesn't end there. That's not the last word, and that's the gospel word, is that death doesn't get the final verdict. That belongs to God and the promise of resurrection. And so when Jesus promises eternal life, he promises two things. That no matter what's going on in life, whether you're thriving, whether you're languishing, or whether you're just barely hanging on by your fingernails, God is there in everything. That's one form of eternal life. The other form of eternal life is that life that happens beyond this one that death kind of ushers us through. And Jesus makes these promises not to perfume over or paper over the reality of death, but instead to pronounce it as real and then to say that God has a rebuttal to even death, that love cannot be killed, that God cannot be killed, that there is resurrection, and that God has in mind this whole new thing. New life. And so we live in trust and we live in hope that one day God will indeed wipe every tear away. Amen. Mm -hmm.